0: Welcome to episode two of the Unstable Fluid podcast. In today's episode, Kat and I discuss what it's like starting a PhD, how code is used in academia, and we introduce our first ever problem of the month. Enjoy. Hi, how are you, Kat?
1: Yeah, I'm good, Thomas. Uh, how, how are things with you? You've been doing a lot recently.
0: Yeah, uh, things are things are good. Um, I mean, uh, I, let's just go with like full disclosure for the listeners. It's been like four months since we've recorded. <laughs>
1: Yeah. It's, it's been... not
0: quite four, it's three and a half.
1: Okay, that's that's reasonable. I honestly can't I think, remember when we filmed. Yeah.
0: I think by the time this podcast episode actually goes out, it will be just over four months to the day since we recorded the first one.
1: Okay, well that's, so, yeah, things have happened yeah. since
0: then. A lot of things to catch up on. Uh, I started a PhD.
1: Hmm. How's it going?
0: I'm, it's good. I'm no longer an, an unemployed astrophysicist.
1: No, but you are officially a member of a Welsh university. How does that feel?
0: I, I don't know what any of the signs say. <laughs> you picked up, no, you picked up any Welsh? Um, not really much more than I knew when I got to Wales, which was mostly from you, which being Boradar, which doesn't apply because this is the afternoon.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's just cover all our bases. Good morning, good afternoon, okay. good evening, good night. Um, cool.
0: I will definitely forget that.
1: Yeah, I'm half surprised you haven't tried impressing people in the club with "klamfepotwiget and go go
0: Haven't been to the club. Have done that.
1: <laughs> nice. I'm proud. I can teach yeah, everyone the... one thing. It's it's doing that.
0: Yeah. No, there's um, there's some folk on uh, there's the uh, yeah there's some uh, there's some other first year PhD students. They're actually from South Wales and they can't say it. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> getting one up. Very nice. Yeah.
0: Um, what have you been up to since we recorded the pilot four well, months ago? Well, I
1: suppose the people that are, are listening to this won't see a drastic change, but hopefully the, the viewers will notice a mild difference of, I changed my hair. I feel like this yeah. is not that big of a thing for everyone else, but for me, this was a big deal. Um, It, it,
0: I, it was a big deal. You got rid of the purple.
1: Yeah, I'm now off brand. I am now going for the uh, autumn vibe of orange and brown split dye. I like Horus, it.
0: Or uh, as or as simon clark put it uh, at definitely not clark con chocolate orange hair
1: (laughs) uh chocolate orange i got pumpkin spice latte today actually that was the first time they were like this i think more an aesthetic vibe than actual it looks like a coffee um but
0: yeah yeah. i don't know if i don't know it's like is pumpkin spice latte like the vibe you're going for
1: (laughs) a little bit like leading into autumn it's my favorite time of year and i've had like purple hair for so long I was just like desperate for a change so uh, I went to my hairdresser and I was like I want something different and that was the only thing I'd said to them and then walked <laughs> out with this it was it was a bold move and I'm very happy
0: <laughs> okay a hairdresser you've been to for a long time or mm. somebody knew and they just were like i have gonna do this
1: <laughs> no I think I've been seeing my hairdresser for whoa, 10 years nearly so like okay I, right I trust Something them a lot. doesn't
0: know you then. Yes. Okay. Yeah. They were the yeah, ones that no, first put the
1: people in, so.
0: All right. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um,
0: yeah. A- Asi- and aside from hair, anything new in the rest of your life?
1: I mean, I, okay. There's a very going to be a very small subset of our listeners that care a lot about the hair story. And I feel like I'm yeah, not yeah. saving our entire audience, but for them, thank you for validating this. Um, yeah. Aside from that, I have been to two continents um and five talks and or conferences um so the the era of Kat puts her name out there to try and get a job has officially begun um (laughs) (laughs) i viewed this as uh the last opportunity to go as a phd student to all of these talks and conferences uh and also yeah just went and use up the travel budget yeah, I didn't want to say, but you know, you run they they do, yeah, you've like, got you a travel budget, it. you
0: might as well use it.
1: Exactly. So kind of used definitely used up the rest of that now. I have one more trip planned as a PhD student, um, which I leave uh Do I say I leave on Sunday? Because that's gonna dox the fact that this is gonna be like go out weeks after the fact of recording.
0: I mean, it's a podcast, it's kind of a given fact, it goes out weeks after the fact. Essentially, you're saying you go in three days, right?
1: Yes. Yes. Okay. So, finish recording this, go pack, maybe check that my travel is still available. It'll be fine.
0: (laughs) Okay. Yeah, great. That's continent number three, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, Fourth one over the last 12 months. Third one of the look You've not got that year. many continents left. I know. I'm going to try and see if I can hit them all in my lifetime. It's going to be great. Okay.
0: I thought you were going to say the 12 month period.
1: <laughs> I... I think Simon
0: may have a heart attack if you tried that.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. I i don't think that's good. Unless we do like an around the world via train type deal, I, I think that is pushing the boat a little bit too far. Y-
0: yeah. yeah. I'm not entirely sure you can take a train from Europe to North America.
1: No. You could do it by boat, though, in theory. Yeah. And if you went northeast, south. If you went east.
0: Yeah, then I suppose that's if you went the, short, the shorter bit over the top of the Pacific.
1: Yeah. yeah. You just have to, like, uh, detour down problem- to Australia and back.
0: Yeah. Anyway. Um, not that yeah. we're planning that.
1: Because no, but PhD that would budget be a, definitely
0: doesn't stretch to that.
1: An interesting problem to consider in the future though, of just what's the optimal yeah. route around the UK around the UK around the world if you wanted to hit every continent and you really didn't like boats.
0: <laughs> anyway, um yeah, yeah. we launched a, we launched a podcast last episode.
1: We did, I suppose that kind of comes part and parcel of what's happened since we filmed the previous one of we put the first one out there. But yeah, it's it's yeah. weird. I I don't it know felt a feel very about odd it.
0: seeing it like a yeah. The, it felt very odd seeing it like appear on things like Spotify and Google Podcasts and stuff like that. Though they're yeah. they're killing Google Podcasts now.
1: Oh, I yeah, mean, it's being
0: amalgamated into YouTube Music.
1: Uh, I didn't really it's know Google it existed, killing another
0: product. Though. It's Google killing another product.
1: That's sad. They anyway, do the phones um, good
0: though. Yeah, they do. We're, we're both now on Pixels. It's great. <laughs> not sponsored. Um, no, definitely not. I wish. <laughs>
1: If anyone wants to, hit us up. Um, Yeah. No, it's...
0: Though, if you're a fossil fuel company, you can fuck off. I will edit (laughs) that out.
1: (laughs) a oratory. Yeah, that too. That's for the the blooper reel. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was seeing it on Spotify for me, I think. I, I saw it on the podcast app, and that was cute. And, like, on YouTube, that was also, like, yeah, if we... I don't know where people are watching this or listening to this, but... It was Spotify that I felt like, oh, God, this is real. Like, that that was new and shiny. And, like, I saw our podcast next to, like, actual (laughs) professional podcast stuff. Like, that was fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Spotify definitely made it feel real. I I think because I associate Spotify with people that actually do stuff as a job. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like you stream stuff on Spotify and it's, like, if you stream music on Spotify, it's all predominantly artists that do it as their job Mm. and i don't know it just feels more professional
1: yeah it it definitely does um but
0: Uh, but yes that was kind of fun
1: yeah if you haven't listened to the pilot episode go listen to that one and then come back that's your homework cool
0: shall we launch into some of the topics we're going to discuss today um I, I feel yeah. like I'm I'm going go to go to something that, um, now that I'm officially no longer unemployed, I am back to student status, because apparently I'm better off without an employment contract, if you ask the UKRI. Um, starting out on a PhD, possibly?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I suppose it's... I had the terrifying realisation that I just experienced my ninth freshers. Okay. So... I am quite far away from starting a PhD <laughs> unless yeah. I decide to go round again. Um but how has induction week, and I suppose everything you've been going through like moving, how is it going? How how did you feel?
0: Um I've got I think I've kind of had the whirlwind of just about all the emotions. Everything from like excitement through to stress through to like <laughs> <laughs> um I, I i can't really describe that emotion but you know what i mean <laughs> um, uh,
1: existential dread uh, slightly more happy than that uh,
0: t- t- trying to deal with some of cardiff's drivers yeah existential dread
1: <laughs> i mean doesn't cardiff have quite a good number of cycle lanes or is this
0: yeah that's the thing most of my commute is on cycle lanes oh god <laughs> yeah Oh no. Otherwise, it's fine. But yeah, it's uh that, yeah, that's the existential dread. Um, yeah, no, the m- moving was um moving was good. Like we've, I say wait. I moved out with my partner. Um, so we've like moved into a house. It's like not student accommodation, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, compared to rent prices in St Andrews, Cardiff is really cheap, which also helps. And yeah, the move though was a bit um bit much but yeah trying to move down when you have to move on a Friday when because you've got like a family commitment the day on the Thursday and then you're taking photographs for Simon Psycho Con on the Sunday
1: that was <laughs> a big weekend don't use the real title that's not, yeah, that's not I what know. it was called it's
0: definitely not Clark Con <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah like that, that was a very full on weekend and then it also happened to be a heatwave
1: Jeez. So, so was quite building Ikea
0: furniture in the heatwave was um, fun.
1: I can imagine. But um,
0: yeah, had a, had a bit of time to settle in and then got started like induction into PhD through CDT induction, department induction, and then actually getting started and dealing with you know, all the IT.
1: Okay, so you said that uh, you had CDT training and PhD training or oh, induction. What What does that mean?
0: Essentially it comes down to the funding. So it's it's a bit different from a standard PhD. Normal PhDs are funded either by yourself being self-funded, or you're funded by like a research council. So for astronomy, it's typically the Science and Technologies Facilities Council, if you're in the UK. But there are other funding pots. Some are like put put together by like individuals who just bequeath a load of money to the university, and others are what are called CDTs. Centres for Doctoral Training, and that's what mine is. So I'm part of a CDT called AIMLAC, which is AI, Machine Learning and Advanced Computing, and it's a CDT split over like five different universities, Cardiff, Swansea, Bangor, Aberystwyth and Bristol. And it's multidisciplinary, so it's not just all astrophysicists, it's not even just all physicists, you've got mathematicians, computer scientists, biologists, a variety of um, different disciplines that all use either like big data or are going to be using machine learning techniques AI techniques and all that sort of stuff in their research so I had like three days of induction with them because um, they give you a bit more sort of extra training and over the rest of my first year I'm going to have like another four training events that are focused on you teaching me how to use machine learning for one thing, um, Mm. but just other sort of additional training that people funded by, say, SDFC won't get.
1: I see. That's very cool. Is there any extra assessment with uh, your CDT then? Or is it just the training (sighs) aspect?
0: Well, so there are some top modules that I have to do. It's not like they're not like assessed, really. Whether you get to progress is based entirely on engagement. So as long as you engage with the module then yeah, you're fine mm. as long as they can see like you're not just sitting around doing nothing so like i have a, a data uh-huh. analysis module that's hosted by Cardiff Uni. um the amount of engagement i have to do with that is there is like a small continuously assessed thing at the end of the module and it's like as long as you do it and you have like clearly put in the effort to learn the stuff and do it then that counts as you have engaged sufficiently with that module and then there's another module hosted by each of the host universities
1: okay so that's really cool yeah so my cdt um has a training component but it has a first year that is a master's year um so they they package the training as like if you're going to do all this extra work we may as well try and get you a qualification out of it um but you have to do be like well-rounded in the the stuff that samba offers um but interestingly so they're in the process of putting in a new bid for funding for the cdt the new one is potentially not going to have that masters year because there were there are pros and cons in that i now have two masters degrees which is quite fun Mm -hmm. um but fundamentally it's all just training for the phd so spending more time developing the skills for the phd might be a better use of time it's it's there's no right or wrong answer, but it is interesting that different CDTs do things differently.
0: Yeah, mine is like actually quite different. So, as part of the CDT, between your sort of second and third years, um sort of over that sort of the over that interface between your second and third years, you take 6 months out and go and do a 6 month placement in industry mm-hmm. with a firm that works with one of the sort of areas associated with cdt and it's something that isn't the phd gonna be like similar sort of similar sort of work to what you're doing so we don't have the master's year thing we have this separate go into industry and be somewhat useful
1: that's quite fun and then you learn all of the industrial skills i imagine um you say that like because you do big data but you do space yes so are there companies that do spacey big data is that a thing that exists
0: so astrophysics research is almost entirely limited to the world of academia. Oh, uh, okay. Like, so most of it's done in universities and then there is amounts of it are done by sort of governmental organisations, things like NASA and the European Space Agency and their counterparts in other places around the world. They will deal with um sort of astrophysical research as well. Like the amount of data that comes in from the likes of JWST and Hubble and all that sort of stuff that comes in through the Space Science Desi- no Space Telescope Science Institute, I think is what it's called. And then gets like processed in loads of places around the world. Mm-hmm. But most astrophysics research is done by people who are fundamentally publicly funded. That's fair. So doing big data things in what i do in astronomy i would end up doing probably big data things in another area that is not astronomy okay in my placement
1: you said you're doing modules in other places like in the other institutions do you
0: well i will be yes
1: sorry you will be uh
0: i haven't i have not been given access to the ones i should be doing at the
1: minute oh
0: (laughs) university bureaucracy moves slowly
1: yes yeah it, it does um something that i remember uh in my first year, it took an absolute age. Have you been paid yet?
0: Uh, tomorrow.
1: Okay. That's late.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. The. Um...
0: Essentially, the problem that they have in, um, with like Cardiff paying the stipends for new starters is like, The way the policy works, they can't get our bank details unless it goes through a Microsoft form that only people with Cardiff University email addresses can access and we don't get access to our emails until about three weeks before we start. Hmm. Yeah. Which is then not enough time for them to apparently process payments out on the 1st of October.
1: I see um so, i yeah, think i have had
0: the email i am getting paid tomorrow allegedly
1: exciting uh drinks are on you then yeah uh, <laughs> no it's something i remember when <laughs> i started was the yeah you needed to be registered and like proof that you have like right to work and that your funding's like everything's all checked out and you are who you say you are um but you do that when you get there but by the time you get there you've missed the um so if you are funded in the uk the stipends come out quarterly um, so everyone's just there like desperate for the first of october because that's that's payday
0: <laughs> no i know i know what you mean it people that have just come from undergraduate master's degrees so integrated master's where you do it all as a oneer. Hmm. like the student loans stop in like june you have four months with no income and then you work for half a month before you get any money from your stipend
1: yeah the the funding opportunities are good in some ways and absolutely awful in most of them <laughs> It's one of those things where it's very difficult because I think fundamentally, as long as everyone is going into it with their eyes open of this is what it is, this is what you're being offered and these are your options that are available. um, Like, that's the thing you want to focus on. But then at the same time, making sure that, well, there are things that definitely can be improved. So can we can we get on that, please? Um, Yeah, yeah, just because you're aware of all the issues doesn't mean that you can't still want to improve your environment.
0: Yeah. It's that sort of thing like being aware of all the issues is I think it like, yeah, if, if it was being hidden from people before they start, mm. that would be a bigger problem.
1: If you want me to start ranting about things that aren't told from the get go, I am very close to running out of funding.
0: I, I was about to say that, yeah, there are several but several many things that they don't tell you when you go into a PhD. Yes. And like do you want to elaborate? Do you want so, to rant?
1: I kind of do. Um,
0: do. Do I tint the whole screen red at
1: this point? <laughs> it's, I'm, I am very fortunate. So I have had this stress for a very long time. And actually, as I was saying, uh, I think before we started streaming, I have cu- just come from a reintroduction where my director of studies sat down with all of us final year or post final year or pre final year students and later half PhD students
0: order of magnitude final year students yes
1: uh to be like hey this is all the information that we did throw at you in induction week but you don't really remember because you were overwhelmed and focusing on the immediate stuff and we're actually going to like take an hour have a full conversation about it and we were asking every question possible but basically there are three deadlines that are important when it comes to the end of your PhD and I have recently learned that it is different at every institution. So when you're applying Mm -hmm. for something, if this is something that is important to you, make sure you ask. Um, and again, I can't tell you Thomas, but check with Cardiff, but there's typically a registration deadline, which is when the university stops considering you a student There's your funding deadline, which is when they stop paying you. And then there's your submission deadline. Um, Yep. And that's like when you need to get the thesis in by. And typically the thesis, you have to get your thesis in by the end of your registration because otherwise you're not a student anymore. Um, but yep. you run out of funding sometimes anywhere up to a year before that. Mm-hmm. And they just stop paying you. Um, and at that point, the university turn around and they say all of these fees that have been covered as part of your um, stipend. So not only do you, they pay our stipend, they pay for the tuition as well. Um, they turn around and they say, well, you owe us this now. You actually have to start paying the university. Um,
0: Even though they don't consider you a student.
1: No, so this is before they stop considering you a student. So they stop paying you. And then for me, I have a year of, I'm not, I'm still a student, but I'm not being paid. So I have to start right. paying them tuition. And that is, okay. that's quite common
0: <laughs> Even if you're in writing up status.
1: So this is the get around and this is something that I'm looking into at the minute. If you do nothing you run out of money on the 1st of January or the 1st of April or the 1st of July. Probably
0: 1st of October. 1st of
1: October is typical, yeah. Um, I'm actually end of January because I have four months Since anyway. Um, anyway. You run out of funding um, and then the next day you get a very angry email from your university student finance saying pay tuition fees, which can be Anywhere from, like, the order of 500 quid for a year to, like, thousands of pounds for a year, depending on your um, home or international status or how long they're expecting you to pay up front. And yeah, if you don't do anything, you get that email and that's it. You have to pay them. Um, Mm -hmm. Luckily, most, and again, this is apparently not standard, which is something that I thought it was, but most places will let you go into writing up status where you make an agreement with the university that you're going to stop doing research and spend more time on writing. Some to most universities will then eat the cost of the tuition if you write this agreement with them. But you have to give them this big plan of like, no, I promise I'm writing up, I'm doing these chapters in this time and you have to give them this like proper detailed skeleton of the plan. Um, Mm -hmm. And that will buy you maybe six months. You know, things come up, life happens, everything. You it gets shifted, and if if having the extra time is is something that works for you in your life, then that's great. I'm going to go into it, and I don't think I've spent a lot of time over the last few months kind of coming to terms with the fact that I have uh, coming to terms with the fact that I almost feel like a failure because of it, and that's not okay. Mm. Because actually it is really common and it's not a comment on my lack of ability. It's a comment on like just where the research is and I'm fortunate that I can. But
0: yeah, it's it's definitely not a comment on you. It's a comment on the system as a whole. Hmm. The idea that this sort of stuff isn't necessarily told early on so people don't have ample opportunity to plan for it. Like if you're if you're told at the start of your PhD, it's very common for people to go into like a six month writing up status at the, or you know, even write up status. But it's very common for people to Overrun. not quite be finished when their funding runs out. At this point, the university will charge you. Then people can start thinking, oh, OK, well, four years from now, I'm going to have a bill of 2000 pounds. Well, in that case, I've got to put away 50 quid a month yeah, if I can to prepare for that bill that will come if I'm not finished in time. And if you've got four years to plan for that, that's somewhat more manageable.
1: I think as well, it's being aware of it so that you can have that conversation with your supervisor. Like I was very fortunate that I have a really good relationship with my supervisor. um, And we have been on the same page about my finishing date for the last year. But I think if you're not aware of it, and then suddenly you're being told that you're expected to pay some like amount of money in six months time it's a lot harder to kind of stand up to your supervisor and ask for the accommodation of like no i need to know that we're on the same page about when i'm finishing um or what can Mm -hmm. we do to get us to the point where i can finish in on time um especially if you're thinking of not staying in academia which is is a very very common route through a phd like you don't have to want to stay in academia just to do a phd you can do it for personal reasons for development reasons for training reasons for just personal curiosity yeah
0: yeah i mean you've got that whole thing of there's like order of magnitude fewer phd places than there are undergraduate Mm -hmm. places and then there's fewer postdoc places than phd students and fewer like positions to become like lecturers or readers or whatever um research fellows and such like you sort of funnel down. There's like it, it's not a pyramid scheme, but the hierarchy is a pyramid. But <laughs> I don't know academia may be a pyramid scheme. That is also a quote from somebody in my department.
1: <laughs> I mean, I I fully back it, and I've heard it at many conferences. Yeah. Um Yeah. But no, it it's if you know that you want to leave and you want to get a job, or if you have a job lined up, you you need to finish. You can't work full two full time jobs. But for a yeah. lot of people, what ends up there some people have to. Yeah. A lot of people do it or they spend some amount of time um, with nothing.
0: I feel like coming into the PhD, there's a lot of things in academia that people take for granted that you just don't know. Like um, like everyone has collaborators mm. and it's like, how do you get collaborators? My mind's gone blank on all of the other possible examples, but there's a lot of things in academia they don't really tell you. Like, um, I don't look. Like, how do you decide something's worth writing a paper on how do Mm. you like how do you come up with new ideas other than just like be told by your supervisor initially do this but you're meant to evolve into this person that can come up with something new
1: yeah i mean if you figure out the answers to these can you let me know because i'm still
0: the collaborators thing is the thing i really don't understand like how do you suddenly decide like i'm gonna write a paper with this person
1: (laughs) uh so i think a lot of it is networking I think actually the yeah. answer to a lot of this is networking. But yeah, like working with people uh, in the same way that any sort of connection or interaction happens. Like you could say, okay, you so say you don't know how to get collaborators, but arguably we're collaborators, but just for science communication. Yeah. True. And that's because we started talking at something, say on Simon's Twitch, or I don't really remember how I met you, it just appeared one day. Um, Yeah,
0: it's surprising how often that happens.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's actually quite common in academia as well, of say you go to a talk or you go to a conference or you're just standing in the dinner queue next to someone and you start chatting. Um, And if you're in the similar field, you talk more about your research and then it kind of develops from there. Or you've been introduced by someone. So I have a collaborator, um, just the one, um, but they're lovely and I really like them and that came about because my supervisor was like the stuff you're doing could be really complemented by their work let's have a meeting with the three of us and it kind of developed from there and now i have a really good working Mm -hmm. relationship with them and their research group um and i'm slowly like building up those independent connections with people that they've introduced me to and i think a lot of it is just knowing i'm gonna say the right people but by that i mean people who don't want to pick the ladder up behind them yeah if you can as you like progress to a more senior position and they'll happen sooner than you think because people now think i'm senior and i'm like that's not stop it only within the phd sphere but still um yeah making sure that you help out other people along the way as well so yeah that's good but yeah so it's then when you do have those chances of like say before registration or during lunch or um just in passing um getting to know people but the thing that um i i'm very bad at emails anyone that's tried to work with me will know i'm i'm very very bad at communicating but something that makes me really happy, <laughs> i do my best um that's it's a it, we can have an entire conversation about like imposter syndrome and anxiety around academia oh we will
0: at some point in a future episode of the podcast yeah. like subscribe on youtube or whatever the subscribe option is on podcast apps i don't know what it is i don't actually use podcast apps that often
1: uh i think it's follow i don't know
0: i think it's probably follow.
1: but anyway i'm i'm really bad at emails but it's ironic because i've had a few people do it to me and it has always made me very happy of after i've given a talk someone has sent me an email saying that they enjoyed and like even that interaction of like didn't get the chance to talk to you but really really enjoyed um your thing or like didn't get a chance to talk just wanted to ask a quick follow up it doesn't have to initiate a full conversation but just that awareness of people it's it's nice to give feedback um, if you're going to email yeah. someone and say your talk was awful don't do that but yeah. if, if the, yeah. the
0: rule of the internet also extends to real life don't be a dick
1: <laughs> it's yeah surprising but yeah that that has always made me really happy and in, in starting those conversations I think is a nice way to do the networking without you know if you do have life outside of things highly recommend because genuinely i had someone email me uh yesterday after a talk i gave and were like it was really nice to meet you and i really liked what you did and i was sat there grinning for about half an hour because yeah. it made my day
0: i've had like a similar experience after we launched the first episode of the podcast and somebody just sent us a really nice message on instagram
1: oh yeah yeah if you like this tell us please <laughs> please <laughs>
0: yeah somebody sent us a real nice message on instagram uh, i can't remember who it was mm. um but yeah, they the the message was really nice, and I just like immediately screenshot it and sent it to you. I'm like, we got a really nice message. Somebody actually liked the thing. Yeah, and it felt really good. So yeah, like Kat said, like if you like the thing, tell us. We've gone sort of sort of uphill on the from where we started on things they don't tell you about academia. <laughs> so shall shall we leave that topic on a bit of a high note mm. and talk a little bit more about doing research in the sciences, which more often than not now involves
1: coding. I think we should. I enjoy that you're like, right, we're on a high. Let's ruin it with cats talk-, talk about MATLAB. <laughs> but um, yes, yeah. It's something that even even the pure mathematicians that I hang out with who like historically do not touch computers are starting yeah. to do some sort of, sort of coding, even just for visualization purposes. I, I would consider myself a numerical fluid dynamicist, but that's like very yeah. soft... Computing, in the grand scheme of like if i think of someone who is a computer scientist yeah i i'm still quite small models in comparison to that but in comparison to someone in pure maths i am i'm i'm the computer whiz
0: no I, I suppose like before we go any further we should like quantify what we mean when we say like coding in academia so this is gonna be anything involving writing computer code to do anything in Involving research so that can be anything from right from like doing data analysis to doing sort of more is yours analytics, semi-analytic yeah just try and model those sorts of models right
1: yeah i mean like i would say the analytical stuff is the um the maths and then the numerics is the numerics but
0: but anyway, so you, you, yeah, okay. So going from sort of everything from doing data science, doing statistics and computers, using things like programming languages designed for that, all the way through to at least within what I, what I mean, by saying like using it for science. So you can go you go into like big simulation side. So the sorts of things that I will be working on, where you're dealing with simulations generating terabytes of data, where you're having to do complicated things in the computer because your RAM isn't big enough, and then you also have people doing sort of things that fall more under computer science where you can have people developing machine learning where you're creating programs that improve themselves through taking in training data um, or developing other programs to do things so computing in academia is very very broad
1: i think a lot of um the side of it that i see on the the mathsy side is the mm-hmm. i there's a so definitely a larger and increasing subset of machine learning um mm-hmm. especially collaborations with industry i think machine learning is quite a bit of a buzzword and a lot of people really like it and i also yeah. don't think it's going anywhere so it's good to at the very least have some idea of it um
0: yeah machine but- learning is definitely not going anywhere because it can just do so much more than we can do with traditional like, statistical techniques and such yeah to be clear when we're saying machine learning we're talking about the type of program that can improve itself based on input data not something not necessarily something like ChatGPT.
1: i suppose this is where it starts going dangerously far away from what i know and i have to try and remember the many talks and machine learning modules that i that i did way back when but a uh, chat mm. is is more ai right like it it will put words together it's not writing something it's putting words together in an order that is probably very high to matching what the answer is actually going to be um yeah
0: so it's yeah it's made a load of connections based on its input data and when you ask it a question Mm. like give me give me a clickbaity title for a youtube video about nuclear bombs or something like that I don't know. That would be probably a better example. It,
1: it, it, it will tell you to stop asking it about bombs, I think, if you do that. <laughs> yes, um, I think probably. I mean, something that I have, I have a really good example for this one, actually. Okay, go if, on. If you ask it <laughs> a maths totally question, um, if you tell it to solve, for example, sim- uh, someone did it as if you solve a quadratic equation, you give it a quadratic mm-hmm. equation and you type it in and you say, solve this equation. It And if you, especially if you say, do it step by step, it will write you a big paragraph and the words, if you skim it, the words match what a maths teacher would say or what I would say if you asked me to explain. Um, but if you actually look at the equation that you get given, quite often it's wrong, especially if the numbers are big. Um, yeah.
0: In fact, you're, you've are you chosen like a quadratic equation example for this. In some cases, it's even worse than that for doing maths. If you ask it to sum two very large numbers, mm. it will at some points get it wrong. Yes, because it's not doing what computers normally do, which is add things together really well. Like if you give a num- if you give a computer two numbers and tell it add them, unless something's gone very very wrong, it should get the right answer. Hmm. But because of the way programs like ChatGPT work, it doesn't, because it's looking for connections between strings of text. It's not considering them necessarily predominantly as numbers.
1: Yeah, it, it sees what. Um... You've inputted, and it looks through, say, the entirety of the internet to try and find something similar, and then just matches to what it thinks the answer yeah. is without actually doing the... It's not a calculator. Um, no. But I've, I've seen a few different people write little blog posts dotted around the maths internet sphere of this mm-hmm. example, because I think up until that point, I hadn't really grasped what it was. <laughs> Yeah. like it's, especially now there are so many good maths tools on the internet like wolfram alpha is a website okay. where i i i personally will put a lot of my problems in there <laughs> and be like can you please?" Well, it's
0: essentially a web terminal for mathematica
1: yeah exactly but it, it's actually doing the computation there there's there's no ai there's no machine learning yeah. as far as i'm aware beyond interpreting Interpretating? Interpre- interpreting interpreting beyond interpreting
0: i get what you mean and we've very much diverted way down the idea of machine learning and such but anyway all of this stuff back to our back to veering right back to what we were trying to talk about all of this stuff falls more under computer science Hmm. than i guess using computing for science yes which is it's a subtle but important distinction i
1: have a question for you go on do or what is the difference between computer science and scientific computing?
0: I would say scientific computing is the use of code to do science, for example, like using it for data analysis or using it for simulations of a physical system, for example, whereas computer science is more about the structures um, of programs, the structures of how a computer works and how you interface with it through code.
1: I think that's that's a fair... Comparison. I think scientific computing, I always picture as the like the big, heavy, many terminals up and gonna hack the mainframe um, stuff with big code. And then computer science is like, can we make, if you have a, a code that does a certain task, can we understand how to make it faster, more efficient? Do we understand exactly what connections are happening there? I just plug things into MATLAB and try and make pretty pictures.
0: So we've talked about the breadth of things that we that people do with scientific computing in academia. You can't just do everything with Python. Nope. But there is a variety of people using a variety of different programming languages that go from the highest level, you basically tell it, do this thing, and it essentially just does it, which is where I kind of put Python, where it's got so many extra functions and black boxes that you don't necessarily have to understand how they work to use them, all the way down to your low-level code languages, where you're essentially telling the computer... This is how I want you to add these two numbers together, then do this, and you very explicitly tell the computer what to do. In my undergrad I have used both very high level codes like Python and low level codes like Fortran. I will be doing a similar thing in my PhD, doing a lot of data analysis in Python, but then the codes I'm running are again in a low low level language using C and C++. Um, Kat, you use something else.
1: So yeah, you said a lot of big scary words there.
0: Please do ring me in if I say too many big words.
1: I'll start being like, explain what that one is. But I think you covered everything. Um, If if listeners or viewers disagree, then you know, tell us. Yeah, DM Thomas. Um, DM the
0: DM the unstable fluid podcast Instagram, which which is which will be me.
1: (laughs) I don't do anything useful beyond talk at Thomas for a few hours, and he deals with it. It's great anyway i don't consider myself a computational person so like computational fluid dynamics cfd is like kind of an established field within fluid dynamics as far as i can tell and that is where all of the scientific computing people kind of live in the fluids like academic landscape that sounds like a fancy word let's go with that one um yeah yeah, so like that works. CFD, scientific computing, I think those are kind of sort of loosely interchangeable, and I say that with a grain of salt because I don't want people to Within come Within the me.
0: world of fluids, yes. Yes.
1: Um, I would consider myself numerical, which I okay. perceive, personally perceive as slightly below CFD. If you're talking about this big, like, pillar of um, from just making the computer run everything to only doing things with pen and paper, I kind of sit in the middle of... I do some coding but i've done a lot of pen and paper maths beforehand so that my code is quite gentle in comparison like it's not really big i'm not solving everything i've made a lot of assumptions in my system to make the equations that i'm looking at much smaller
0: right so you so you're taking a a problem that has a load of different aspects to it on paper condensing that down into um into like one two maybe three equations that capture all of the important physical phenomena and then putting that into a much lighter weight program that can run on a laptop
1: yes exactly and i think that's a good indication of the sort of the fluid dynamics sphere as well of like you have the people that take we all go from the same equations we all start with the same thing of just like every single point in every single space is defined by the navier stokes equation mm-hmm. uh, a scientific computing app, aspect of fluids will take those equations, plug them into a massive computer, put your conditions and your your you know physical parameters in and just run and get back a load of stuff that's taken a long time to compute but you know every single point and every single space, everything about it. Mm-hmm. That's that side. There are analytical people that look at the Navier-Stokes equations and then they take them so far away from reality that they have these complex what if there's a wave but the wave is a perfect circle okay this this is definitely a conversation we can have in the future but like there are genuinely people that study these like vortices so like this swirling pool of liquid that Mm -hmm. as if it was a wave moving along um the surface of the ocean for example and it's like that's not physical but they know everything about it because they've done all of the analysis But that's not something that is real so it's it's that like very far away from understanding and using a computer for it and then there are those in the middle that kind of do a lot of analysis to make it nice and simple and then feed it back into a smaller program my computing language is matlab and matlab Mm -hmm. is was kind of designed for mathematicians but it's the thing that it's really, really good at is doing really big matrices and matrix multiplication. Mm-hmm. And that's just like big grids of numbers um, and multiplying those together. Like that's the thing it's really fast at. That's what it was designed yeah. for. Um, and because of that, it's really good at doing these like long lists of equations because you can think of a set of equations as um, a matrix multiplication, basically. Um Yeah. So yeah, like it has its ups and downs. One of the major downsides of MATLAB is it's behind a paywall. Um, so mm. if you're not affiliated with a university, you typically can't get access, or a company, yeah, you can't get access to it, and that's really bad, especially in the world that we're trying to, you know, public access is kind of important. Um,
0: yeah, and it also just creates like difficulties if you then move into doing something that's not with MATLAB. Like if you've learned to code in MATLAB mm. and then you've gone into then you go into a workplace like, oh yeah, we use Python for everything. Yeah. If you've yeah. never used Python before, that puts you at a massive disadvantage. And you could argue the same going the other way, but fundamentally something like Python is free.
1: Yes. Yeah. And you you can always kind of adapt to it. Um, yeah, that is a bad thing. However, the my justification, and when people have inevitably come for me for this, the, the justification that I will continue to use is it has been used by Fluid dynamicists in the UK in maths for decades. And yeah. fundamentally, I would love to sit down and just write rewrite all my code in Python. I'm sure it would make my life a lot easier sometimes if I did that. But all of the packages that exist, all of the resources that exist, and all of the support that I can ask for... Will be in MATLAB. So my supervisor does not do anything that isn't MATLAB. So I either I'm struggling with my code or I'm struggling with my maths, and he can help with both at the minute. If I switch to a different language, he can't help anymore. And um, I,
0: I totally get that. And as much as like they have the whole argument about a paywall, um, you can have the same argument about coding languages that are just older, like. Hmm. In my undergrad, I was taught how to code in Fortran 90 in a computational astrophysics module. Fortran 90, is, as the name suggests, is from 1990. And we're still taught it in the uh, computational astro course at St. Andrew's because there are still a lot of tools, either legacy tools that have been written in Fortran that we need to use uh, in a lot of like the research projects, or um, because there are tools still being developed in it like in my mm-hmm. master's project i used an astrophysical fluids code so it can do a lot of fluids things but it's designed for doing astrophysical fluid um stuff mm-hmm. and that's written in fortran 90 and it's like being actively developed at the minute i can go into the slack channel and i can see the commits that have gone up in the last week yes it's not a modern programming language and people will question like why i have used it why i like it but fundamentally it's kind of the same thing that if i want help if i wanted help in my master's project well i needed to know how to use fortran to use the tool in the first like use the tool in the first place but if i was like okay i'm gonna like basically try and redo this in c for example i wouldn't be able to get help with it and it's this exactly the same thing it's just replace paywall with old
1: Fortran 90 is old it's, it's yeah, an old it coding language. It's not it's that much old th- older than me. <laughs> I was going to say, it's not that much older than me, but <laughs> it's younger than some people we know. Um, yeah. But in terms of how quickly just the computing world has progressed, like if you think about the amount of technology, like one of the iconic things is like you can tell a Gen Z because they don't remember cassette tapes. If you think about yeah. how quickly technology has advanced in the last like 30, 50 years... Well, I suppose if you think
0: about um, the fact that there are now people who are reaching the ages that they'll be doing, like GCSEs or in Scotland, National Fives. Um, and they are, they've are they been born since the iPhone. <laughs> like, the iPhone <gasps> existed before these kids did.
1: Yeah, that's bonkers. Oh, thank you for making me feel old, Tom. <laughs> I'm
0: getting to the point that there's like, folks starting um, university who were born after I went to primary school and that was wild it only um, gets worse
1: I promise I know um, it only gets worse beyond just causing existential dread and losing yeah. all of our listeners that are over the age of 30 because we're be- being old and jaded in mid-twenties um,
0: yeah I'm even sure I'm in mid-twenties yet
1: <laughs> oh I hate you um,
0: I don't know it depends what you class 23 as I think it's just the mid- year everyone hates you early okay. to mid
1: in the same way that 27 is definitely mid to late not late because I don't want to be late 20s. (laughs) The point I was trying to make was that technology has advanced so quickly and typically research moves really slowly. Mm -hmm. Like, I am reading papers from the 70s that are considered modern. Like, academia does move on a different timescale and when you then combine academia, which is quite slow moving, with something like technology, which is really fast moving, it's no wonder that it's taken a while to kind of catch up.
0: Yeah, I think it definitely depends on your field though.
1: Yes, yeah, 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 definitely.
0: Because you're saying like there's papers from the 70s that are considered modern. Papers from the 70s in astronomy are some of the earliest papers in like the astronomy backlog because astronomy is fundamentally a science that has developed in time with technology. Like like, up until the development of cameras, the Mm. biggest detector that humanity had for astronomy was the human eye. And then we got to having like photographic plates and we could get much bigger, but they weren't particularly sensitive. They weren't um, the most accurate things. And then we got to film, um, which could start doing a bit more. And then we got to like CCDs, the camera technology we use now, the sort of semiconductor based things that are in your phone. And these keep getting better and better. And the amount of astronomy that's been possible to do since the invention of CCDs and the invention of microprocessors astronomy has accelerated so much more because of technology i see whereas people have been able to do math with pen and paper well quill and paper for centuries
1: (laughs) i was gonna say like i there's a a book that i have somewhere on my desk um that is one of the big the big boys that i'm i cite and that i use a lot um Mm -hmm. and that was written in 1890s I think the edition I have is from 1918. Even that is not the oldest thing that I regularly have to like refer to. But yeah, maths maths has been around for a while.
0: (laughs) I mean, astronomy has been around for a while. I mean, astronomy is arguably one of the oldest sciences. Like, realistically, ancient Greece had people like looking up at the sky and thinking, that thing's changed and writing it down.
1: Can we do an episode on old school astronomy? Because I vibe heavily with the geocentric model please (laughs) like
0: i have so many questions (laughs) that they do not fit in this episode
1: (laughs) (laughs) but like just as an aside like if you do you ever think about how freaking cool it would be but also how like it's such an interesting perspective into like the human brain that we looked up and went like there are loads of discs around the earth because obviously that's the thing that makes sense like it's cool um,
0: okay right right so like the really early geocentric model not the mathematically batshit crazy version
1: oh I mean I like the fact that Venus does a pentagram in the batch sh- one as well but like I d- can we please do like a history of astro we could do a episode? history of
0: astronomy episode at some point yeah. Um okay so moving on from apparently the geocentric model is a good idea to talk <laughs> about jumping way back to when oh. you were talking about the different types of using computers for science and having everything from like pen and paper if you're mathematicians that basically don't really use it that much to where you sit, where sort of funnel it down and then have a lightweight hmm. program. And then you have the other end of the scale, the very big uh, simulation-type codes where we take all of yeah. the physical laws and just run it until it cries. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I land at that end where we take a load of different physical processes and let them evolve because our systems are so complicated that it is not it is a near impossible task to try and distill them down into a set of nice analytic equations i'm studying galaxies and if we're dealing with, you've got also the fluid flows that you're trying to keep track of. So where just where is the gas? Where are the stars? Yes, we model stars as fluids. Then alongside that, you've got to deal with temperature and metallicity, which is all the stuff that isn't hydrogen and helium, and how that goes where. And then keeping track of temperature and how that all interacts with each other. And that's only a few of the uh, parameters that we have to be modeling in these large-scale simulations where we're trying to reproduce what actually happens in the universe and that's what gives us the terabytes of data that make you know computers really struggle and we have to get really creative about loading things into ram and then out of ram otherwise it yeah it's like ah yes why does this computer not want me to load 50 terabytes into ram oh right it's only got four
1: sometimes i think i have big code and then yeah, I, I think about like, oh, you know, I, I made like a whole gigabyte of data from one of my simulations. I'm like, as loads, that's so big. Nah, <laughs> getting probably like going straight off tangent again. It's fine. Is there no like analytical models that you could use? Because if you're doing fluid dynamics for space, like there must be some stuff or is it just not good on the scales that you're playing with?
0: So we do use some analytic or semi-analytic prescriptions for different phenomena. But fundamentally, the reason we use them is because they they're prescriptions for processes that happen beneath the resolution of our simulations. My simulations are looking at a thing called the circumgalactic medium, which is essentially a puffy gaseous thing in the um, around a galaxy that extends to like three hundred kiloparsecs from the uh, from the centre of the galaxy. A parsec is about three light years. Three hundred thousand of those, so like nearly a million light years. These simulations are huge and in the best case scenario, which is incredibly computationally intensive, our simulations get down to a resolution of about 250 parsecs, which is about 750 light years. The distance between Earth and the next star over is about 3-4 to light years, I think. So we're not even able to resolve like molecular clouds that stars form from when we're doing these simulations. So these gigantic clouds of gas and dust that collapse down to form stars would all fall within one grid cell of our simulations.
1: So what are you looking at on that sort of a scale then? So
0: on that sort of scale, we're looking at basically bulk gas flows and how... Uh, So we're we're interested in what's happening in that halo. So we're looking at how gas is moving out of the disk, being driven by gas accreting onto a black hole, and we have like basically models informed by higher resolution simulations that say, right at this time with at this at this time in a galaxy's evolution with this amount of um, with this amount of gas in the galaxy, um, we would we like this galaxy should be creating x amount of stars and, they, and we have like a star formation history model which is what we call a subgrid model that basically says the star formation rate in this in this area is this it's producing this amount of stars which then produces this effect on the gas in the in the cells nearby we have like semi-analytic or analytic prescriptions of phenomena that we can't numerically resolve and this is the, one of the biggest issues we have in doing simulations like this is that we can't re- we, we can't do it perfectly like in an ideal world yes we could keep track of every atom of hydrogen in a galaxy but that is a completely impractical simulation that would never finish
1: that's kind of interesting that like the uh i guess we would call it like a multi-scale model of like you have something on the um or like a hybrid model i think this mm-hmm. one of my friends does with um on a much smaller scale, but you have, like, microscopic, macroscopic, and then trying to match or inform the small scale to the big scale stuff.
0: Yeah, so, um, like, one of the... That's very one, cool. one of the things in galaxy simulations is there's a thing called the interstellar medium, which is all the gas and everything else between stars, which is, like, a really important part of a galaxy, and everything that happens in it happens below our resolution. So there are people, mm. that are people whose, like, research area is running is running higher resolution simulations of the ism to try and create better subgrid models to feed into large galaxy simulations to try and make our simulations more realistic
1: when your research is kind of almost neck and neck with the ability of technology that's that's a really interesting
0: thing that i almost always has been
1: yeah i wouldn't have even like crossed my brain of something to consider Mm. um like, within my stuff. I enjoy that not only do I do small-scale fluids and you do big-scale fluids, but within those fields, I do the small-scale model and you do the big-scale model. Yeah. So when you're talking about these sub-models that feed into bigger stuff, like, because I'm looking at one bounce of one drop with one small, like, understanding the air layer, yeah. that feeds into droplet behavior yeah. as, like, a slightly bigger field. So I think that's a really cute parallel, actually.
0: I think the only thing we haven't really talked about, though, when we've been discussing coding in academia, is how it's taught by universities to (laughs) undergrads. And I have a feeling that you're going to have thoughts,
1: because I also have thoughts. Okay, so my thoughts are split in that I was taught by a very good lecturer
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um. Uh, to the point where I actually, in my final year of undergrad, tutored that module, or like I did the labs for that module. Yeah. Um, but I was taught in Python.
0: Yeah.
1: This is instantly something that I am more comfortable moving around coding languages than I need to be because I was taught in Python, and I did I've done all my projects in MATLAB. Um, I'm
0: in a very similar situation. I was taught a variety of programming languages, like my undergrad maths modules taught me python then physics taught me mathematica of all things but then also fortran (laughs) so yeah i similar scenario of being able to jump between them
1: yeah and i think actually if you have that experience especially really early on in learning how to code and be really good not everyone needs to know absolutely everything about coding yeah um and, you know, you can sit there and be like, what's the point of learning Pythagoras in GCSE maths? <laughs> and the answer is arguably nothing. You're never going to use it. You're right. Good job. Proud of you. The point of doing it is to develop the skills and the critical thinking so that when your problems are thrown at you of a similar sort, your brain already has that pattern recognition in. Or you, you know how to handle something you haven't seen before.
0: I think an even better analogy for the advantages of where, of learning a bit of multiple programming languages earlier on in your coding journey I, I think better analogy is like kids that are introduced to multiple languages like spoken languages mm. like if you grow up in i don't know canada and you have to be bilingual english and french or you grow up in yeah. wales and you have to be bilingual english and welsh or some other country where english isn't one of them um <laughs> like if you learn more than one language As a child, it's much easier to learn additional subsequent languages further on because you, I don't know, there's like, it's more subconscious, I get, with like spoken languages. You you have more ease switching between them. But if, say, I was only taught Python from like the first day I showed up at university to the last day I left, I think I would find it incredibly (sighs) difficult to now go and learn Fortran because everything that I'd ever learned for coding. Would have been within that structure of Python, which kind of hand that like holds your hand through a lot of it and doesn't teach the best coding practices. But that's a separate issue. um I I feel like mm-hmm. the spoken language analogy is a good one, is is a, is a pretty good analogy no, for coding I, I
1: completely agree. Yes. So with the language analogy, I think it is fantastic. Of uh, and you'd have to talk to a psychologist to get like a. Uh, professional answer on this but I think it's something about like the the pathways already being in place that separate the language from um, the kind of concepts that you're trying to convey and if you understand the concepts you can um, interpret them in the right way. If you can learn lots of coding languages or if you learn multiple languages you learn the grammar of that system more than you learn the actual words so then when you need to use a different word you already kind of understand what you're trying to convey and you already have like a bit of a head start. I think it's the intelligent version. There's a there's a yeah. succinct version of that out there somewhere in my brain.
0: Shall we move on from coding in academia? <laughs> I feel like we've gone on about this for a very long time. Like we said last time, this podcast is going to evolve as we uh, as we figure out what it is we want to do with it. And one of the things we're going to bring in is... Uh, I'm going to call it Problem of the Month. This podcast may not come out every month, but we're going to call it Problem of the Month. Um, so the the problem I have, I'm going to suggest we think about is how would you go about calculating a temperature for the Earth?
1: Okay, and I'm going to be a fussy mathematician and say your problem is ill-posed. What do you mean by temperature of the Earth?
0: That is a very (laughs) good uh, question to pose. Okay, because yeah, the Earth has so many different temperatures you Mm. could measure. You've got like land surface temperature, which obviously varies across the globe because you've got, you know, everything from... The Sahara Desert, or the desert, desert, um, to like Canada,
1: yeah, or Torpenhow Hill in
0: winter. Hill, 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 hill. <laughs> yes, and that's just land temperature. You've then obviously got ocean temperature. You've got the day side versus night side. You've got um, you can talk about temperature x x distance below the surface of the Earth. You get x distance above the center of the Earth if you consider it, uh, above the surface of the Earth if you're considering the atmosphere. Um, i guess where i was going with this question Mm -hmm. was considering i guess average surface temperature and taking surface temperature to be land so average the average land temperature of the earth for a given time
1: um it's an it's an interesting problem because it's like okay it depends how much time i have to do it or like say you know you want to yeah. you want it at a single point in time so let's say how many resources do you have available because if you have infinite resources i'm gonna stick a thermometer a meter grid apart all over the surface of the earth and then take all those readings and average them
0: yeah that is certainly a very empirical <laughs> way you could do yep. it in an ideal world that would be how you would calculate the average surface temperature mm-hmm. of the earth
1: yep and in in my infinite but money again, infinite yeah. resource plan yeah that's what i'm gonna do um you didn't specify na nah, nah 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 but say i didn't have infinite money or infinite thermometers or finite but large yeah. number of thermometers how would i go about mm-hmm. doing it then what's what's your idea
0: i would go about it from a very physical point of view i guess i would think about it as an input output problem because the earth is a physical system it receives energy and it emits energy so primarily it receives energy from the sun mm-hmm. And it will emit energy from its surface through radiation of heat, so that the, the simple i guess the simplest way uh way to do it would be how much energy is coming in and then measure how much is being given out now measuring how much is being out, given out is difficult. you also have to you can consider how much is being reflected, and then you've got then you add in the complexity of the atmosphere. <laughs> and the fact that it's a complex fluid system consisting of a variety of different molecules mm. and different physical structures, like how much CO2 is in the atmosphere currently versus how much is it going to be in the atmosphere in five minutes because fossil yeah. fuels. But I, I think, yeah, taking into account all of these, so, like, I guess the main... If I wanted to have, like, a cr- like a very crude model mm-hmm. of it, you've the, the main things I would... um want to consider is how much energy is being brought into the system how much is being reflected by the earth because not everything will be absorbed Mm -hmm. how much energy is leaving this is being emitted by the surface of the earth at a given time and it's a complex balance of all of these different parameters so i guess calculating temperature of the earth you have to have measurements of a lot of these things yeah to then feed them into and i guess it's an equilibrium equation.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a really cool way of thinking about it and not something that my brain jumped to at all. Um, If you were allowed to know what the temperature was at some point in time in the past, you could make a rough estimate of, like, an initial condition and then go that way. Yeah,
0: and this is essentially how climate modelling works, like how we predict, okay, uh, with this amount of um, CO2 being emitted into the atmosphere, because we know the temperature now and we've known the temperature in the past... We can make an estimate for how much energy is being emitted by the Earth, um, by the Earth at the minute. Hmm. How is how will more CO two trapping more heat affect that yeah. to then predict what temperature will be in the future? I yeah, I guess I maybe should have formulated the question as how would you go about calculating a temperature in ten years from now for the Earth, okay. for example? That's kind of cool. You need an, you need an input parameter. Knowing absolutely nothing about the temperature doesn't overly no. help.
1: But uh, yeah, it's kind of a fun problem of like let's. If you pretend like it's a stationary system, so there's no time dependence and it's just frozen in time right now, but you had all of the measurements except the temperature. um, Yeah. You could get something reasonable out of that.
0: I guess uh, that's probably a good place to leave things. The problem's been... It's interesting to go into a problem and divert into whatever the discussion takes Mm. us. Um, If listeners or viewers on YouTube, I guess, have uh, any suggestions for Problems or topics we could problems we could go into in a segment like this or topics to discuss on the podcast in future send us emails uh, that's unstablefluidpodcast at gmail.com get in touch with us on our various social media we are at unstablefluid on the uh, social network formerly known as Twitter (laughs) and then on YouTube and Instagram we are at unstablefluidpodcast if you're watching on YouTube you can leave things in the comment section below put it in one of these places and Mm. we will probably see Um, it or I will probably see it or scream it it into the Um, void and
1: we won't That works too. Carrier
0: pigeon would be an interesting method.
1: Yeah, we don't have a postal address though, so good luck with that. Yeah, we don't. Um, Yeah. But yeah, hopefully Um, you enjoyed listening. We we enjoyed rambling, so that's all that matters.
0: Yeah, thank you all for watching, and will see you or you'll see us or hear us, you know what I mean, in the next (laughs) episode. Be
1: perceived in the next one.
0: (laughs) Thank you for tuning in to the second episode of the Unstable Fluid podcast. If you've been listening to us on a podcasting app, then please make sure to follow. If you're watching us on YouTube, then subscribe and hit the bell icon so you don't miss future episodes. If you'd like to get in touch with us, then make sure to follow us on Instagram at Unstable Fluid podcast and at Unstable Fluid on the social network formerly known as Twitter. If you'd like to email us directly, we can be reached at unstablefluidpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you in the next episode.